Yeah, well, that also goes to like genetics, right? Um, I mean, probably the one thing if you were trying to, you know, if you were trying to be an athlete, right? If I was trying to be a professional basketball player, that was my goal. The best thing that I could do would be to pick my parents. Um, and I would probably pick like LeBron James, right, to be my dad. Um, <laughs> or if I was going to be an NFL quarterback, you know, or in Wisconsin, right? Everybody wants, uh, you know, Brett Favre or Aaron Rodgers, right, to be their dad because genetics play a, a really big role in in that. Um, and unfortunately, um, specialization probably does not. My name is David Bell, and I'm an athletic trainer and researcher and associate professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Orthopedics and Rehabilitation at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and you are listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to an all-new episode of the Heads and Tails podcast. This week I'm excited to have on an athletic trainer whose name is Dr. David Bell, and he serves as an assistant professor in the departments of kinesiology and orthopedics and rehabilitation at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where he also serves as the director of the Wisconsin Injury and Sports Laboratory. And everyone who's listened to the podcast before knows how much I appreciate the work that athletic trainers do uh, because an athletic trainer saved my life in a high school football game. So I'm really excited to have you on and you're a very distinguished athletic trainer and you have a lot of research background and you work in areas that we talk a lot about on the podcast with specifically sports specialization and injury prevention. Um, so Dr. Bell, thanks for coming on. And also, can you start off by kind of talking about, you know, sports specialization is like a buzzword these days um, in the world that, that we live in. Uh, so I was wondering, I mean, I know what it means, but can you explain what that means to listeners who might not be familiar with the term? Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks for having me on, Kevin. I really appreciate it and happy to kind of share what we're doing because we think it impacts a lot of people's lives. And um, yeah, so sports specialization has been around for a while, and it used to be kind of focused on sports that were individual sports, right? So you would think of these like um, gymnastics or figure skating. Um, and now certainly baseball has become certainly popular for sports specialization and, you know, a lot of throwing that's been happening in that particular area, right? So kids that are throwing a lot, they get elbow injuries, Tommy John's, that's one of the things that we thought or we think it's linked with is sports specialization. And so just to kind of get everybody on the same page for our conversation here, there is a definition of sports specialization um, that's kind of commonly used, but it's year-round intensive training in a single sport at the exclusion of other sports. Um, and so that's a pretty good definition of it, but I think that there's also some newer areas of research that, you know, is kind of showing that, you know what, maybe you don't just have to play a single sport to be a highly specialized athlete. I mean, I can think of several instances here in Wisconsin, right, where we might have a 12-year-old female soccer player, and, you know, in Wisconsin, we play high school soccer or in the, in the spring, for example, so they might play for their high school maybe a 14-year-old soccer player then, you know, they play for their, their high school in the spring, 
then they turn around and they play all summer for their club team. They might play a couple months of volleyball, but then they also keep playing club soccer at that same time um, during the fall period. And, um, and then they do some, maybe some winter soccer, indoor soccer as well. And so that person played volleyball for just a very short, brief period of time. But the reason that they were playing volleyball, right, was to, was to really just kind of stay in shape for, for soccer season. And so what we like to do now is basically classify people um, into different categories of specialization based on three questions. So this scale, and we call it the sports specialization scale, it was developed by this uh, really fantastic uh, researcher and physician, Nehru Gianti, who's out of Emory University um, in Atlanta. And they did some research to, to basically classify people into different categories, right? So these are yes or no questions. So they're really friendly. And for each yes, you basically get a point. If you say yes to all three of these questions, you'd be classified as a highly specialized athlete. If you said yes to two, moderate. If you said yes to one or zero, then you're like a low level, low specialization athlete. And so the, the three questions are, number one, do you train or participate in your primary sport more than eight months per year? So that means train or participate, right? Um, so it, that would include like things like cross training, for example. Um, can you identify a primary sport? So you might be playing multiple sports, but you're really focusing on doing everything for that primary sport. And sometimes we'll like to say, you know, like a way to frame this might be like, I really consider myself a blank athlete, soccer player, right? Or a baseball player. And the last one is, um, have you ever quit sports, other sports to focus on a, a sport, or have you only ever played a single sport? So answer yes to all three of those questions, and you're classified as highly specialized. That's interesting because it, it also takes into like an identity component to it as well, um, and which is another thing we talk about on the podcast a lot. It's like, what sport do you identify with? Um, and that kind of is a, you know what you're saying it kind of determines or goes into the determination of if you're a highly specialized athlete or not yeah it's dealing a lot more with your behavior rather than like identifying the number of sports that you play okay and yeah. another thing i thought was interesting was that in soccer in wisconsin it's in uh the spring why is that you know, that's a good question. I from, am from North Carolina originally, um, so it was kind of kind of flipped, I guess, or everybody played in the fall in North Carolina in high schools, but in Wisconsin, the boys' primary season is in the fall, and the girls' primary season is in the spring. I don't know the historical reason for that, but um, that's just the way it works. That, yeah, that's <laughs> interesting. I'd never heard of that at all. Yeah. But So nope. what initially sparked your interest in the area of injury prevention and, and sports specialization specifically? Yeah, so I grew up in a small town in Western North Carolina. You know, I graduated with 79 other people. I just happened to go to UNC Chapel Hill for my um, undergraduate degree, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and so I was a chemistry major, a biology major, a chemistry biology double major for a day until I decided that was like a super bad idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I actually just kind of went to um, the resource center and said, hey, I, I don't know what I want to do. Um, I need some help. I need some direction and kind of just look through the big old book of list of majors and saw that this there's this thing called athletic training that was 
Um, and that sounded really interesting. I mean, I certainly had played sports and, you know, really loved athletics and wanted to, thought that would be an interesting way to kind of stay involved. And uh, went down to the athletic training room, volunteered, and kind of took off since since then. And so it's been... Uh, so it's been really fun and it's been really different. You know, like I went to UVA, University of Virginia, sorry for my master's degree, um, kind of got the research bug there and then went out and worked for a couple of years and then really decided, yeah, research is the way that I really want to go. You know, I was an athletic trainer at a, at a small high school in uh, Northern Kentucky and thought that I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to kind of give back to my profession. I wanted to stay in athletic training, and I thought that uh, research would be the best way to do that, or teaching would be the best way to do that also, and ended up going back to UNC. And so then after UNC, I ended up coming up here to Wisconsin, and this is now my, gosh, gosh I guess I'm starting my eighth year here at Wisconsin. Okay, cool. And I know UNC is like uh... – very well known for their athletic training program with uh, Kevin Guskowitz over there, and yeah, um, sure. yeah, they're always always in the news. Yeah. Uh, so there's also a, a cool uh, department at the University of Wisconsin that you're the director of, um, and that's the Wisconsin Injury Sports Lab. So can you give us some background on this sports lab, uh, just kind of like when it was established and like what's the mission? Yeah, sure. So in 2010, when I came to, to UW-Madison, um, I'm the only tenure-line faculty in athletic training, and so I was kind of charged with starting up a research line. And so I started up a laboratory, and I um, actually thought of the name. We call it, I call it the whistle. Um, and I thought of that sitting on the beach in North Carolina before I moved up to Wisconsin. Um, and so that we were primarily focused on injury prevention, and we're primarily focused currently in um, lower extremity kind of sports injuries. And so we have kind of two lines, kind of before people get hurt, which is what our sports specialization line is focused on. And then after people get hurt, we're primarily focused on um, ACL injuries, ACL reconstruction, and really how to optimize rehabilitation and how to improve those outcomes after people get injured. And so I have um, currently three wonderful doc students uh, working in the lab right now. And, you know, what's really fun about a place like UW is that all the collabor collaborations that you can, um, you can part participate in. So, for example, our lab and I uh, collaborate with the Badger Athletic Performance Lab. Um, so that's the lab where all of our Badger athletes go through. And the mission is very similar. It's to prevent injury, um, improve performance, um, and to, to really make sure that, um, that Bucky has every advantage possible as they go out and they, they play on the field. So you're saying that there's a, a collaboration between the sports injury lab and the sports uh, performance, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep, definitely. That's really cool to hear that you know, everyone's pretty receptive to this idea because, as we know, I mean, we hear in the news like recently with the University of Maryland, you know, that isn't always the case. Um, yeah, so, it's definitely true. It, it, you know, it just depends on the location where you're at and are people willing to play nice in the sandbox together. Right. And I think that, you know, at Wisconsin, we're, we're definitely all about that because we know that if everybody's successful, then that makes – everybody's successful. <laughs> right. It's a win-win. 
Yeah, exactly. So specifically, like what kind of work goes on in the lab? Like, do you have, you know, University of Wisconsin athletes coming in? Is it students coming in for the testing? Um, like, I guess, how are the dynamics uh, of the lab? Yeah, so that's a good question. We um, So in my lab, primarily a lot of da- actually data collection takes place outside of the lab. And so we actually, for our sports specialization research, a lot of times we end up going out to places where a large number of, of numbers of kids are uh, located. So, for example, we have a very large outdoor soccer complex here um, that has like 10 or 15 soccer fields and they have tournaments there you know, pretty much every weekend. And so we'll go to those locations to, to try to survey kids about their um, sports specialization behavior. We'll go up to, you know, indoor, you know, it's Wisconsin. I think one of the things that people might kind of take for granted is that they seem like, oh, Wisconsin's really cold. But it's like, well, Wisconsin is really cold, but they also build a lot of indoor facilities so people can participate in sports all year round if they wanted to. So sports specialization, for example, isn't just a, a thing that happens in warm weather climates, it's happening everywhere across the United States. Um, but as a result, you know, those people have to pay their bills too. And so they end up, you know, trying to develop these models that keep people coming into their facilities year round. Um, so we'll go to, you know, indoor basketball courts that have 25 locations that have 25 courts and we'll, we'll survey kids there. Um, in the lab, we, we don't, you know, the Badger Athletic Performance Lab has everything that they need in kind of a one-stop shop. So we'll use and look at their data, but it'll their athletes are primarily, primarily staying over there. Um, you know, we try to go out to, for example, orthopedic clinics and um, recruit, you know, that 16-year-old soccer athlete who just tore her ACL and might be interested in coming into our lab and um, getting some testing done throughout rehabilitation. Um, so we can kind of give her that information as she as she begins to the process of returning to her sport. And generally, how receptive are those athletes that you go out to recruit uh, into participating? Because I mean, me as an athlete, I would be like all about it. Yeah, I think overall <laughs> they're they're very receptive. You know, I think it takes one or two. It's kind of like a herd mentality, right? Like once you can kind of like get one or two people to do it, they kind of. They all, they all flock. The people who are injured are definitely interested in it, right? Because they know what they're going through is not fun and that they would like to help anybody not go through that possibly, if, if, if at all possible, right? So um, they're, they're a little bit easier to recruit. But, you know, when you're a place in a large place with, with hundreds of kids, you know, it's, it's a pretty easy process to get um, – you know, some of them signed up. Right. And, and I work in research also. And I, when you were saying that you go out to these big soccer complexes and everything, uh, how does the, the consent process work for that? That's got to be tough, like right on the spot, I guess, right? Or. Yep. So, I mean, it's like in a lot of other places, right? You have to, we usually do just anonymous surveys um, and we're not asking any, you know, questions that have any um identifiers you know, or yeah yeah exactly identifiers so we don't ask them their name or anything like that or um, we don't ask for date of birth or our, our pre-identified identifiers that the IRB really cares about okay you know you have to get mom or dad's permission to do it so it takes a little bit of legwork but it's um, usually a pretty successful way to do it okay uh 
I kind of asked a question kind of related to this before, um, just in terms of like how the injury prevention lab kind of interacts with athletics on campus. But do you think that the injury sports or yeah, the injury sports lab, uh, injury prevention sports lab impacts the athletic culture at Wisconsin? Just kind of going back to the, the whole Maryland thing in the news, I yeah. feel like ha- by having you know a resource like this that it might you know make people more receptive to the idea. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think at least from a college standpoint or from a collegiate standpoint, um, time is probably one of the most valuable components that a student athlete has, and it's the thing that everybody wants a little bit of, right? You know, the the coach. Um, the strength and conditioning staff, the athletic training staff, the Badger Athletic Performance Lab, the um, and even classes that they're taking, right? Compliance wants a little bit of their time. So there's a lot of different things that are pulling them in different directions. And so what the, the what we call the BAP, the Badger Athletic Performance Lab, tries to do is to really um, minimize the amount of time that's required for the student athletes. So trying to maximize the information um, and minimize the amount of time. And so I think that by doing that, that the student athletes kind of understand, and then the, the other thing that they really try to do is they try to create usable information out of that. And I think that's one of the things that probably goes the longest way, right? Collecting data is collecting data, but you can't do anything with it and it just sits in a drawer, then it's a waste of time. Um, and so trying to create actionable or usable information and trying to also educate those athletes about how that data can be potentially used. It's like, hey, we're collecting it now. We're going to give you this report. We're going to go over it with you. But also this becomes really important. For example, if you get injured, now we have really good baseline data about where you were at the beginning of the season and how we can get you back to a certain point to help make sure that you return to playing safely okay and at your school uh a pretty famous i guess newsworthy story is uh with chris borland and his decision to retire from football yeah and a bunch of other badger football players have kind of done the same they've retired from football you know earlier in their their careers than i'm sure they anticipated um do you think that this culture has kind of influence those decisions or made uh, these players, you know, made the decision easier for them? Yeah, that's probably a hard question to answer. I would say that um, the concussion, the amount of information in the media about concussions has probably done a lot more to to drive their decisions um, to, to, to potentially quit football and probably personally what's happening to them. I have no idea what's happening with them, right? I, I would just you know, they're probably becoming aware of some of those issues or potentially aware of some of those issues. And they're probably thinking that now's a good time to probably kind of bail out of the sport and, and not continue, you know, professional football athletes are certainly one aspect of the, of the continuum. Right. But we now see that, um, sports participation in youth football is down about 20%. I think there was just an article in one of our local newspapers here that showed that pop Warner was down about, um, 20% um, for youth sport participation. And so, you know, and to me as a youth sports researcher, I, I get it. Um, 
I understand why those kids are and parents are maybe making those decisions. My, I really hope that those kids are going to play a different sport and that they're going to do something else. Um, because I think overall people don't really have a, a good sense of like what risk really is and, and how that factors into their daily life. Right. Like I can drive back to, I can be in Chicago, I can be driving back to Madison and I can drive 55 miles per hour. Right. That's kind of one level of risk. I can drive a hundred miles an hour, right? That's another level of risk. I can drive a hundred miles per hour. Um, I can, you know, have a Big Mac in one hand and a coffee in the other hand, and I'm driving with my knee at a hundred miles per hour. That's a totally different level of risk at the same time, right? So, um, you know, we we want kids to make sure. I, I get this asked this question quite a bit of like, what? what is your research trying to do? Are you trying to ruin sports? <laughs> and my answer is usually no, it is actually just the opposite. We want, at least from a sports specialization standpoint, we want to make sure that all kids have access to sport. We want the sport to be as safe as it can be. Um, and we want to make sure that everybody has access to it. No, I think th those are great points. And I get kind of frustrated with the same questions at times, like, sometimes people think that I'm I could be like anti-sports or anti-football but like you said like it couldn't be more opposite you know and it exactly what you said too it's it's more the level of risk like yeah just decreasing the level of risk and get rid of the Big Mac and the uh, <laughs> cell phone in your hand and driving with your knees uh, and you know we could prevent a lot of the injuries that we see today yeah exactly absolutely um, if, yeah I mean, just, there's, there's risk associated with it right but um, if it's just a, a youth athlete playing Pop Warner football, like, you know, I don't think we need to worry about CTE in, in those athletes quite yet. Um, you know, it's the, we're seeing it in the athletes that are more professional athletes, right, who are, um, have years and years of exposure. Um, and so we just, there's so many unknown questions at this time. Um, if they don't want to play football, fine. Make sure you're doing something and you're not sitting on the couch. Right. And just before we kind of lead the whole Chris Borland uh, discussion, it was the only reason why I asked was because you had mentioned, you know, how the information that's collected from you guys in the performance lab kind of, you know, gives athletes good information on where they stand after injury, before injury, et cetera. And I just think that, you know, Chris Borland and a lot of these other players made informed decisions. So to me, maybe they're more aware of the information that's out there, you know, because of that. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, we, yeah, when we move on to, uh, let's move on to your, one of your specialties, which is sports specialization. So can you kind of tell us um, maybe some findings uh, from your research in sports specialization that might surprise uh, people? Yeah, so I had a really motivated doc student um, who actually just graduated, and he took a job at, or just moved out to San Diego, and is going to be an assistant professor at San Diego State. Uh, we started this about this research line about five years ago. We were doing a research study actually that was out at high schools, and the sports specialization scale that I had just talked about kind of popped up across my desk, um, and I was working on the on the research ethics application and I was like oh I will put that information in there and so you know he was really interested in um, 
that area. And so he was doing some preliminary analysis. And of course, lo and behold, like the sports specialization stuff became like the most interesting thing that came out of this entire study. Right. And one of the things that we we did in this very first study that we did, we were at two high schools. We had about 300 athletes. Um, one of the things that we saw is we had no clue about what the prevalence of sports specialization was going to be, right? Like what percent of kids would be classified as highly specialized. And we thought it would be like 10%, 5%, something relatively small. But what we found in that first study was that about 35% of kids, uh, those two schools were classified as, as highly specialized. And so, you know, being hopefully a good researcher, right? Like Kevin Gusko would stop me, um, you know, I, ran back to PubMed and we were trying to find other articles that looked at this because we thought surely we're not the first people to try to figure out what percent of kids are actually classified as highly specialized. And, and we really were um, one of the first people to kind of put a number on this from a high school setting. And also in that study, we happened to be at a relatively small school, I'll say relatively, it had about 600 people in it and also probably like the third or fourth largest high school um, in the state of Wisconsin, right? So a very, very large school with over, you know, 2,000, 2,500 kids. And what we found is that school size really affected prevalence rate, meaning that if you go to a, or if you attend a very large high school, you're much more likely to be classified as, as highly specialized compared to kids who are at a small school, right? So, and if you think about that, um, that deals with kind of like the number of roster spots that are available. You know, if you think of like a varsity basketball team, they're going to have still probably 15 people on that roster for that high school uh, varsity team. And so is, are the kids that are at the, at the small school, right? So, but the, you have a lot more people at the large schools, so you have a lot more pressure being put on those kids um, in order to, to try to make those and, and get – and attain those roster spots. No, that makes perfect sense. And I, something I never thought about, but it does make a lot of sense that, yeah, there's like more competition for those spots. So the kids feel like they have to do something to set themselves apart and just kind of like pick and choose, you know, I'm good at, I think I'm better at this sport. So I'm just going with this one. Right. You know, and we also hear of, um, you know, different scenarios like, Hey, if you know, it's very well known in this area that if you don't play for, you know, the soccer coaches club team, you know, over the summer, you probably don't have a pretty good chance of making um, your high school team in the fall. Um, so that was one of the, the first studies that we did. We also kind of did a much larger version of that study where we went out to a lot of club sports. Um, and what we found and instead of doing just high schoolers, which are normally like 14 to 17, 18 years of age, right? We really expanded that pool and we went much, much younger. So we went down to individuals that were 12, athletes that were 12 to 18 years of age. And in fact, most of the athletes who were participating and filled out our survey were 12, 13, and 14 years of age. And what we found in that case was that we expected that number, that percent, that 35% to drop. And instead, what we found is it was exactly the same. We thought, we're getting younger people in the study, right? We're getting more people that are younger. So that's going to drive the percent of kids that are actually participating that are being classified as highly specialized down. And what we found is, yeah, it was pretty much exactly the same. And 
what we found is that prevalence seemed to peak around age 14 and 15, right? So that's kind of uh, freshman in high school, maybe sophomore year in high school. It depends on where you're at, right? In Wisconsin, they don't have, they might not have uh, school, some high schools don't have policies for like no cut freshman teams. Um, and then after you, after you're done with your freshman year, you know, you, you might get cut if you're moving to the JV. But what was also super shocking was that we found that about 30% of 12 year olds were classified as highly specialized, which was just kind of really alarming to us, right? That um, those kids were 12 years old and they're answering yes to basically all three of those, of those questions. Um, we also have found that, for example, uh, there is a gender effect and that females are a lot more likely to be classified as highly specialized compared to males. And we've seen that in multiple different studies. Again, this might be kind of regional effects because volleyball is hugely popular here in the Midwest. Um, and we see that volleyball is perhaps one of the most popular sports for us to, um, to have our athletes specialize in. But also, interestingly, this is probably regional effects also. Like, we weren't able to find a ton of baseball players, um, club baseball players in Wisconsin. You know, we tried. We reached out to different groups. Sometimes they just weren't receptive to us coming out and surveying their athletes. You know, probably if you did that study, for example, in, in Texas or Florida or Arizona, right, um, those numbers would probably be a lot higher. So, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask, like, why, you, why do you think – it's more prevalent in females? That's a great question. So I just wonder if maybe um, they just are getting pressure to, to specialize in sport from coaches. We know that, for example, parents are the number one reason why kids choose to play a specific sport. Um, and then we also know that coaches are one of the primary reasons why kids decide to specialize um, in a sport. And so I don't, and this is more just hypothetical here. We're going to, we're actually interested in that as a research study as well as like, why are some more of the motivations behind it, uh, kids deciding to specialize. But the, but the idea is that, yeah, maybe it's coaches are putting a little bit more pressure on these ladies. Um, maybe it's the team itself is putting more pressure on people to specialize. It's a good question we don't have the exact answer to. Yeah, I was just more yeah curious of what your hypothesis was. But, I mean, when I think back to when I played, I mean, the, the parents sign the kids up when they're kids. So that, you know, that idea for your answer makes sense. And then also from a coaching pers perspective, you, you when you're an athlete, you want to, like, do anything to get your coach's, like, approval or appreciation. So, right. yeah, I could see where the pressures would come from, from that as well. And maybe, yeah, maybe girls are more likely to do that compared to guys. It's yeah. entirely possible as well. So one of the things also that we've done over the past um, four or five years is link, you know, these three questions, the sports specialization scale and injury risk together. Because, I mean, I'll go to, I was actually at kind of a parent meeting um, Tuesday night and I usually start these things by asking, it's like, hey, who's heard about sports specialization? You know, almost everybody raises their hand, right? And who's heard that sports specialization is bad? Almost everybody raises their hand. So when we started doing this again, you know, four or five years ago, we would 
the, only the real data that existed were kind of these consensus statements from these medical groups. And when you kind of dug into the area that was related to injury risk, you try to go find the articles that they would link with that show that, hey, here's the relationship between sports specialization and injury risk. And what we found is that there was actually not a whole lot of data or barely any data and really no empirical evidence linking sports specialization and, and injury risk, probably because we didn't have a good way to classify people in the, than in the past. Right. Um, so, the, so we've done, oh my gosh, probably um, at least five studies here at UW kind of showing that, you know, and I'll put on Twitter or something about things that we're doing and people will kind of say like, well, don't we already know this, right? Haven't we known this for a long time? And the answer is, well, I think that our, our physician friends, our orthopedic surgeons, our primary care sport docs have been waving this flag for a long time because they have been seeing this come through their clinic for a very long time. And, you know, they're linking it with sports specialization, um, even though there hasn't really been any evidence um, to, to really kind of back it up. And so, uh, you know, there are probably gosh, seven or eight articles out there now that actually have shown these relationships between sports specialization um, and injury risk. And we're happy to be the authors of probably the largest prospective study to date, um, where we followed about 1,500 Wisconsin high school kids through the course of their athletic seasons and were able to link sports specialization and overuse injury together. And so we're and we're actually replicating that um, study right now, but specifically in volleyball players. So we're going to enroll about 1,500 volleyball players and are working on that right now, actually, across the state of Wisconsin. Um, and we're going to follow them throughout the volleyball season and kind of see if we saw that same relationship. Is sports specialization, you know, associated with injuries and what injuries um, in, in high school volleyball players? Yeah, that'll be really interesting to see what comes out of that one. And I'm interested because you had mentioned when you you know ask a room of people who's heard of sports specialization and, and who thinks it's bad, and everyone agrees that it's a bad thing. So where do you think the discrepancy lies between coaches valuing, you know, in some cases, multi-sport athletes and maybe are there other other parents and athletes that kind of think the opposite? Because people, because like you said, the the data shows that, athletes are becoming more and more specialized yet we know that it's not good for you so why where do you think that discrepancy is yeah that's a yeah that's a great question um we did actually go out and we surveyed some coaches and we you know we asked them um you know how much does participating in organized sports all year round increase your chances of getting overuse injuries um and we ask high school coaches that, and we ask club coaches that, and then we also ask them about their knowledge, attitudes, and beliefs related to sports specialization. And you know, it's interesting. We did see some differences there. So, for example, high school coaches were, um, you know, much more likely to believe that that sports specialization was a problem, um, much more so, for example, than club coaches. They thought it was less of an issue. Um, they were also much more, and both groups were equally equally believed that participating in organized sports year-round increased uh, kids' chances of getting an overuse injury. We also have asked um, parents that, and children 
kind of that same question, right? So we've asked parents, like, how concerned are you about the risk of injury in youth sports? You know, and about no one, a very small number is extremely concerned, right? Um, there's about 30% that are like very concerned about it and about 40% are at least somewhat concerned about it. And when you ask, when you break that down by moms and dads, like moms are much more concerned about the risk of injury in youth sports than dads are. You know, and when you ask kids that same question, basically kids don't care. They are not concerned about the risk of injury in youth sport, right? And I try to like channel my 12-year-old self or my 14-year-old self and like how would I answer that question? And, and I would probably be the same way. I'd be like, I'm not concerned about the risk of injury at all. I just want to go have fun, right? And I want to play with my friends. Yeah, um, the other kids will get hurt, not me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, and we have as parents, like how much of a problem is early sports specialization and youth sports and about 84% of parents are going to be somewhat quite a bit or a great deal concerned. So they, they, they see it out there, right? And they seem to think that it's a problem. Um, and actually kids are seeing it as a, a problem as well, right? So, um, but children, interestingly, also perceive a lot of benefit from sports specialization. So, right, we ask kids, like, how much does playing a single sport year-round increase your chance of making your high school team? And basically, 93% of kids um, were somewhat to a great deal, with most of them answering, like, quite a bit uh, or a great deal. So they're, they're perceiving benefit of specializing or playing a single sport because they think it helps them make uh, their high school team. And so that's something that we're going to have to deal with. And also, importantly, that's probably directly coming from coaches, right? Um, that, that the message is out there, the kid culture is out there that says, hey, if, if I don't play the single sport, then maybe I don't have a good chance of making this high school team. I really need to, to dedicate myself um, to, high, to, this, to this sport. Yeah, just kind of like being a fly on the wall when I'm listening to some of the stats that you're you're listing off. It it kind of seems like the club teams could be the reason for that discrepancy because the high school coaches, if they're not also the club coach, seems like they agree that sports specialization is not a good thing. Yet the kids still, and the parents obviously don't think that sports specialization is a good thing, but the kids seem pretty adamant about it being the ticket to their future in athletics. So it could be, yeah, like the club coaches, I don't know, not to place all the blame without any data, but just from listening, that seems like it could be a possible avenue. Yeah, no, I think that, um, you know, we hear this a lot. Uh, we hear that, you know, if I don't play baseball in the fall, right, they won't let me play baseball in the spring, right? So we, we hear that a lot. And we're also hearing a lot of conflicting information about what's happening with club sports. I think that the kids, at least in Wisconsin that we've been talking to, right, playing for your high school is still a really big deal. Um, and it's something that people really strive for and that they're very interested in. Wisconsin is, like I said, pretty good about that at the moment because, you know, clubs, club teams and high school teams seem to play well in the sandbox together. We, however, we hear reports, I was just talking to someone from Texas the other day of um, that that probably really wasn't the case that, for example, club sports and high school sports are kind of pretty much going on at the same time, 
right? And that um, at some point, these kids are being forced to choose, do you play for your high school or do you play for your club team, right? Play for your hub club high school, you can play in front of, you know, hundreds and thousands of people at some point. Um, but if you play for your club sport, then maybe you get this access to, um, well, a theoretical better access to some of these tournaments, right? Where there might be college coaches, where they might be able to, to come see you play. And so it's, yeah, we think that, you know, money is driving a lot of this kind of youth sport culture, you know, and I don't, I think it's, there has to be a balance somewhere. I understand like the people who are running these club teams, they need to obviously enroll people in order to make money to make, to maintain a living and stuff like that. But, um, you know, where does it come at the expense of the kid? I don't think it's a healthy thing for a kid when they leave their high school soccer practice and then they have to go to their club, to a club game, um, and then play soccer for, you know, four hours in a night. I don't think that's a healthy thing to ask our kids to do. Right. And that was, that was exactly what I was going to say in regards to the money. Like, there's money involved with the club team, so that's it's interesting that that's kind of where the the pressure might be coming from, right? Or you go to these you know these weekend tournaments where kids are playing four or five, eight games a weekend. Um, you know that's a ton of exposure for a kid in a very short period of time over a very fatiguing, you know, process. Um, oh, and not to mention that they probably have to travel purchase plane tickets, you know, get hotel rooms in order to do that. There's a couple other studies out there. We, we're the author of one, and actually Nate Ruggianti, who's, who's I talked about before, um, is the author of the other one, and um, showing that, you know, high income or high socioeconomic status children and families are much more likely to be classified as highly specialized compared to um compared to low socioeconomic status families. And also that these kids in these higher socioeconomic status are much more likely to be the ones who are having these um, severe overuse injuries that result in a ton of time loss and also um, usually surgery. So it kind of, so a couple, you know, potential major issues there um, associated with that. And so, you know, it used to be that sports was a way for everyone to kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And then if you were a good athlete, you could, you know, enter the world of high school sports and you could, if you were really good, you had a chance to be seen by, you know, college coaches and um, because playing for your high school team was a really big deal. Right. And, uh, you know, I don't know that we're, we're heading in that direction still. Yeah, I mean, all I hear is, like, more money, more problems kind of deal. And I'm always, like, super yeah, interested yeah. within this, like, uh, socioeconomic discrepancies. Like, it's really messed up, like, in a lot of ways. And it really – it's something just, like, I don't know. It really gets me annoyed and, like, frustrated. And it makes me want to do something about it. But it's crazy, like, what money does to, I don't know, everything. Yeah, not, exactly. Usually not in a good way either. No, no, definitely not in a good way. <laughs> I um, agree. Are, are there any – we talked about some red flags that kind of help identify athletes who are uh, specialized in terms of the time commitment, um, you know, how they identify themselves. But are the, what are some, like, physical uh, red flags that maybe a parent or uh, a coach could kind of notice and pull that – uh, athlete aside or give make sure they get some rest yeah so i think 
for example, like pain in general, right, is one of those red flags that people need to be aware of. We can talk about some of the recommendations that we've kind of helped validate over the past few years here. Um, and we can give some of those recommendations to your audience and yeah, stuff like course. that. We definitely want to do that. But um, from a physical standpoint, right, I think like pain is probably one of the big things. There's a really nice study on baseball players and um, whether what percentage of those athletes actually kind of throw with pain, right, in their shoulder. And that's like one of the things that you're just like absolutely not supposed to do. Like if you have shoulder pain, you're not supposed to be throwing. Um, and that if you have pain when you're throwing, and that really increases your risk of having something serious going on with you that that's probably going to need a much longer recovery. Um, also, just kind of while this is on my mind, you know, I think one of the messages that we need to get out to coaches, right, is that, um, especially some of these youth coaches, right, is that sports specialization is probably can be really detrimental to your team. Right. You might think that it's actually helping you because you're developing those athletes um, become better basketball players, right, or better soccer players or better figure skaters or whatever. Um, but, man, if you if your team is broken, right, and your team is injured and your team is not available, that can have a pretty tremendous impact on your your bottom line. Right. I mean, whether it's when when losses or just the overall experience in general, you know, maybe you lose one of the, maybe you, you don't lose a person who is critical to wins and losses, but is really critical to team morale, for example. There are, you know, in youth sports, I don't want to say a whole lot about winning and losing, but, you know, you have to keep those things in your mind as well. And if coaches can kind of understand that um, this has kind of broader implications, you know, at least from the Badger standpoint in professional soccer and all these other sports, the number one um, thing that makes team successful is personnel availability, right? And we need to make sure that the, that message is getting across as well. Right, not just availability today or tomorrow, but, you know, weeks into the season and months into the season too. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I usually, you know, try to drill this into my student's head, right? But, you know, there's a lot that we don't know about sports medicine and there's a lot that we don't know about injury risk. But, man, the one thing that we do know is that previous injury predicts future risk. If you have a previous injury, if you have an ACL injury, you're much more likely to have another ACL injury, right? If you have an ankle injury, you're much more likely to have another ankle injury. If you have a concussion, you're much more likely to have a concussion again, right? And so, um, you know, there's pretty good data that shows that if you have a knee injury or a knee surgery in high school, you're much more likely, like almost like 800 times more likely to have another kind of knee surgery in college. So that's, you know, and guess what? College coaches know this too, right? It's not, um, that idea isn't rocket science. And so the best thing that we can do is to prevent kids from getting those injuries to begin with. All right. So can you explain some of the, um, protocols that are in place to, uh, kind of combat the effects of sports specialization and overtraining? Yeah, 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 definitely. Okay, so the recommendations that we have, I'll kind of give you the basic ones, right? So the first one is related to that question, the Gianthi scale related to months per year of participation. So the recommendation is that kids don't train or participate for a single sport more than eight months per year. 
we've done, like I said, we've done quite a bit of research on this and kids that try or play or train more than eight months a year for a single sport are at higher risk um, for, for in, severe overuse injuries compared to kids who are, who play for less than that. So the idea being that, all right, if volleyball season is three months long, right, August, um, September, October, maybe the beginning of November, right, play volleyball, take a month off, right, and then try to participate in club volleyball afterwards. The problem that we're running into nowadays, right, is that club tryouts occur as soon as the state high school championships are over. Um, so I get it that it's kind of a tough thing to be able to do, but um, parents really have to be advocates for their for the health of their, their children through this. The, uh, the second recommendation that we have is related to hours per week. And so that's hours per week greater than your age. So this is a relatively new one. There might not be some people who really heard about this, right? But um, the idea being that, okay, if you have a 13-year-old soccer player, they should be playing and training for soccer no more than 13 hours per week. Um, and so, and it kind of grows as they age, right? So that that includes organized soccer, but it also includes, you know, cross training. It includes if they're doing something else physical, like organized going to, for example, maybe dance practice afterwards, right? It should really kind of be capped around that related to their age. Um, again, we have data that shows that this is the people who violate this are much more likely to have um, severe injuries, overuse injuries. And so, like, but like I said, that's a, that's a relatively new one. Um, the other one is that kids need to have two days off per week. And the way that I like to look at it, right, is, you know, we've kind of talked about this where we have kids who are maybe going, um, you know, going to a practice or a club game right after their high school practice is over. But we also hear of lots of kids who say like, okay, well, I'm doing all these different, different club sports, right? And I'm on my off day for my high school soccer uh, game, I went and played, you know, we had club soccer game that day, right? So I had to go do that. Coaches should be anyway, planning out most of their season, or at least trying to plan out most of their season. And they're kind of hopefully trying to plan those off days, right? They're trying to make sure that kids are getting appropriate rest. And so what we like to do is say, and not only try to get two days off per week where you're not doing physical activity, right? And this, again, this is, these are youth athletes. These are 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. Uh, they need to be getting appropriate rest so they, they can actually fully participate um, the next day. And then finally, uh, we have a recommendation related to simultaneous league participation. This is probably like one of the most common questions we get, right? We would prefer to have people not participating in simultaneous leagues at the same time. So if you're playing high school soccer, don't play, just play high school soccer. Try not to play anything else um, if you can. So I get this question quite a bit though, right? So when we ask parents, so kind of going back to that parent survey, right? We ask parents, so do you believe it's appropriate for a child to participate in multiple leagues of the same sport at the same time? About 75% of parents will say, no, that is not appropriate. So they're getting that message for the most part, although there are 25% that are saying, yes, that's okay to do. 
Right. When we change that question up just a little bit and we say, as parents, do you believe it's appropriate for your child to participate in multiple leagues of different sports at the same time? The number of people that say no is about cut in half. So about 40 percent or so of parents will say um, will think that that's not appropriate. But almost 60 percent of parents think that it's yeah, it's absolutely appropriate for kids to play multiple sports at or to play in multiple leagues of different sports at the same time, right? So uh, one would be like, all right, I'm playing basketball, so I'm swimming at the same time. This is probably one of the most common questions that we get um, related to sports specialization. I'll have a parent come up to me and say, hey, I heard sports specialization was bad, so I enrolled Sally in, um, so Sally is a soccer player, so I also enrolled her in lacrosse at the same time, right? So thinking that, well, if she just played one sport, the, that that's bad in one season, right? And that we need to have multiple sports at the same time. And my answer to them is usually that that's probably going to violate all of these other recommendations that we have going on, right? So it's going to violate the hours per week um, related to Sally's age. Um, and, it's, and it violates the simultaneous league recommendation. And so, you know, those are... Those are, that's probably not what you want to do. Um, you will probably just keep Sally enrolled in, in lacrosse if that's what she really likes to do, or soccer if that's what she really likes to do, right? But, um, and then save the lacrosse or the swimming or whatever it is for when she has a little off time. Right, so it has more to do with like volume of, of training and, and playing versus yeah, the specifics of the, the training. That's exactly. A, yeah, that's a good point because I didn't even like think of that but I guess, yeah, I mean, it, if we, we keep it to those those rules, it definitely is a violation of that. Yeah, we have data that shows that 80% of parents don't know that any of these recommendations exist. We have data that shows that about 80% of coaches don't know that these recommendations exist. Um, you know, if you compare that to, like, pitch recommendations um, for, like, USA Baseball and stuff like that, there's data that shows that, that coaches know a lot about those pitch recommendations and about 40% of parents know about those, at least baseball players, parents know about those recommendations. So we still have a long way to go for these recommendations to kind of, at least for people to get educated in them. Okay. And so what you're saying with the age rule, you know, when, cause obviously as athletes get older, when they get into college and professional sports, like they're forced to specialize, like there's really no other option in, in most cases. So, but you're saying like, because they're older and their bodies are more mature, they can handle the extra training volume. Right. That would be the idea. You know, in today's age, I mean, I have a slide usually in my presentation, right? That's like, well, should anyone specialize? And I kind of sigh and I'm like, well, yeah, probably. Right. Um, but the idea is that we need to delay specialization as long as possible um, because we know that that increases their risk of injury. Um, and also, gosh, there are still sports where if you have a chance to be elite, you might have to specialize early, right? I mean, think of those gymnasts, think of those figure skaters, um, stuff like that. So it's, it's a, a little bit of it's sport specific and it's more of those individualized sports, not so much the team sports, you know, but we're seeing, we're seeing specialization occur in every sport across the board at very high levels. Yeah, and I think... It's also interesting because a lot of uh, 
professional or high-performing athletes, although they are specialized, they have they, a lot of them have outlets that are non-competitive and really are, you know, don't have anything to do with their sport at all. And I, was, I think I was watching the Today Show this morning, and they were talking about Simone Biles, and I guess she won some big gymnastics like championship, and right. she hadn't like done anything in like nine months. And she was talking about, like, going on all these vacations and stuff like that. And to me, that just, like, goes to show, like, you know, more is not always better in, in a lot of cases. So, Yeah. Well, that also goes to, like, genetics, right? Right. Uh, I mean, probably the one thing, if you were trying to deter- – you know, if you were trying to be an athlete, right, if I was trying to be a professional basketball player and that was my goal, the best thing that I could do would be to pick my parents, um, and I would probably pick like LeBron James, right. To be my dad. Um, <laughs> or if I was going to be an NFL quarterback, you know, we're in Wisconsin, right. Everybody wants, uh, you know, Brett Favre or Aaron Rodgers, right. To be their dad because genetics play a, a really big role in, in that. Um, and unfortunately, um, specialization probably does not. Right. So, um, there are genetically gifted athletes. And what we usually like to say is if you have a totally athletic kid, right, who decides, hey, you know what, I'm going to try out for basketball this year, and he's a junior, and the coach knows that that kid is just super athletic, guess what? He's going to have a roster spot on one of those teams. And, you know, the, the less talented kid who might try really hard might not and might kind of lose out in that process. Right. You know, this kind of goes back to, like, why kids decide to, to specialize, too, right? Um, and it used to be, like, this idea. Have you heard of, like, the 10,000-hour rule before? Yeah, with uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, so Mal- Malcolm Gladwell popularized this oh, okay. idea. This guy named Erickson actually developed it, like, in 1993. And actually, Erickson just came out with a book. I haven't read it yet, but basically saying that, like, the 10,000-hour rule is a bunch of crap. Um <laughs> <laughs> and that especially for youth sports and sport development, um, it's it's really malarkey. I mean, if you think about it, right, if we had to say, okay, we want to try to get 10,000 hours so we can be considered an expert in this, in basketball. Let's just use that as an example. Um, we need to be an expert by the time we're sophomore, maybe even earlier than that, really ideally, right, because, you know, maybe – Coaches will, college coaches will offer us a scholarship, get on people's radar around our sophomore year. Um, so that's probably what age 15. So if we do the math backwards, you need to participate in uh, sport three hours a day, or gonna, you know, practice three hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, um, in order to. And you need to do that for over 10 years. So if your five-year-old isn't participating in three hours of basketball right now, um, then you're you're missing out, right? And so it's just kind of totally ridiculous when it comes to, to youth sports to even begin to think about that as a, as a real possibility. Right, and you hear about stories all the time about like pro or NFL guys who only started playing football like their senior year of high school, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Well, and the real thing here, too, is, you know, you also have this idea of um, early developers, right, and late developing kids, and that, you know, you're going to get some of those early developing kids, they might be selected into these sports, 
um, early on, but then they might kind of plateau just because they grew earlier, right? You can think of like a 12 year old, right, who or who's who's shaving, right, and some other 12 year olds are, you know, just look like kind of normal 12 year olds, or you think of like a high school freshman, like right, who's shaving and looks like a 21 year old, right? That's an earlier early developer. Um, and we don't want to just pick those kids. We want to pick the kids who might actually be good, but just are a little later developing, right? So yeah. it's, it's it's a very complicated thing. And it's, you know, we think we're trying to identify these kids. And the truth is that talent identification is really difficult thing to do, right? Like, look, look at the NFL. Um, you know, they have hits and misses on what they're trying to do is talent identification, right? There are very few people that are considered like slam dunks. And there are a lot of people that are drafted in the seventh round. And it's like, oh, actually, he ended up being really good. We right. really missed that. <laughs> yeah. Right. And they get paid to do that. It's true. It's like the weatherman paid to be wrong. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the, uh, and the idea of trying to do all this to get a college scholarship, right? College scholarship numbers are pretty terrible. I don't know if you've talked about this on previous podcasts before, but you know, the numbers like less than 1% of kids are probably going to go on to um, play college football, right? Uh, so if you have actually, so the NCAA actually has really good data on this. So about 1.7% of college football players are going to go on to play professionally, 1.7% of college football players, and less than 1%, like 0.08, so less than one tenth of 1% of all high school players are going to go on to play professionally. That holds true across all sports. Um, it holds true for basketball. It holds true for for soccer. Um, and yet, when we talk to parents, you know, we'll get reports of a parent spending thousands of dollars per year on their club sport experience for their kids. Um, that's fine, and make sure that you're doing it for the right reason, right? If you're doing it because the kid just like absolutely loves the sport and loves the team and wants to travel and all that stuff, that's the right reason to do that stuff. Um, doing it so they get a college scholarship or have a shot at a college scholarship is probably not right. I mean, we'll, we'll talk to some parents who will spend $10,000 per kid per year, um, on their college, on their club sports. And that's just insane to me. <laughs> not most people are like that. Um, for example, in Wisconsin, you know, most kids or parents are spending about $200 on their high school sports or $300 on their high school sports experience for their kids. And most on the average person is paying around um, about $1,500 to $2,000 for their, for their club sport experience. So, right. so, don't, so, so don't bank on getting uh, a, getting money back on your return of, on investment with the, the scholarships. Yeah. It's a, not a, it's not worthwhile. Um, you could put that money away and, you know, go to a nice public institution. It's college is still expensive. I get it. I totally agree. But, um, you know, it's just how people want to spend their money and that's, you know, it's up to them, but just make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Okay. Uh, just as we wrap up our conversation here, I wanted to, uh, highlight one of your uh, research articles that I'm particularly interested in, especially cause we talk a lot about concussions on this podcast. Um, and one of the articles is uh, con that concussions increase the odds of sustaining a lower extremity musculoskeletal injury uh, after a return to play among college athletes. So I was just wondering if you could give us a little uh, brief synopsis of that study uh, and kind of how concussions can play a role in that. Yeah, sure. So this was the, the, the study that we actually did with uh, our Badger 
through the Badger Performance Lab and through through our Badger athletes. But um, what we did is we so the UW is very fortunate, right, in that we're also part of the probably the largest concussion study that that happens in the United States. I'm not particular. I'm not involved with it, but um, Allison Brooks is the PI, the CARE Consortium Study, um, which is you know a very large sample of collegiate athletes that are being monitored and tracked for concussions and then they if they get a concussion they have repeated testing that occurs throughout their throughout their entire playing career so we had really good data on you know when athletes were getting concussions and we also had really good data from our athletic trainers um, about what injuries that they had sustained afterwards and um, what we were able to do was you know we kind of matched everybody up on the team, right, who had a concussion to make sure that, you know, if it was a soccer player we weren't, and they were a forward, we weren't matching them up with, like, a goalie, for example, right, but we would try to attack, um, match them up to, to other midfielders or other people who ran a lot, basically. And what we were looking for was the associations between how many, do injuries, lower extremity injuries occur in athletes, basically, in the first 90 days after they return to play from a concussion. And um, and so what we found is that, yeah, athletes who had a concussion were about, you know, two and a half times more likely to have a, a lower extremity injury um, compared to athletes who had no history of a concussion. So, you know, I guess the brain is important, right? It deals with all, it, it, you know, it deals with a lot of things, right? Even including potentially lower extremity injuries. I mean, if you think about it, right, if you have a, a brain injury, right, which is what a concussion is, um, that that could have some potentially lasting impacts. We don't know, we didn't look at why that was, but theoretically it would kind of be like, well, maybe it's related to, for example, maybe your reaction time is a little bit worse. And so when you do get into these potentially injurious, injurious situations, um, you would normally be able to protect yourself and, and you really can't anymore because of that injury. And right. there have been some, sorry, go ahead. No, right. Even like in like pro perception too, like I was thinking like just your body's ability to like know where it is in space and like the certain movements that you used to do before, you might not have the same feel of that again. Yeah, exactly. And it depends also like, you know, how severe your concussion was. And um, even though we don't really measure concussion severity anymore, it's just like, do you have a concussion? Yes. Okay. And, you know, but we know that some people take a lot longer to get back than others. Um, so that's why we did kind of the 90 days. So it's some future research needs to be done to determine like what the, those factors might be, right. That are right. potentially linked to that. Is it, you know, proprioception reaction time, or is it something like, well, maybe these people are a little more deconditioned because of they, of their time that they missed. And maybe that's, what's making them potentially more susceptible to, to injury either. I mean, interestingly, this study has been confirmed on at least three or four different times. Um, so it seems like what we were finding is, is the case. Um, and it's not just like a invariant finding, right? It, this is now confirmed in three or four different places at different, with totally different populations. Right. And I, I actually just got over a knee surgery. I had an osteochondral defect in my knee. No, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. It's, it's, it was, it's not fun. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> my physical therapist, she kind of thought that, I might have gotten the osteochondral defect because of my brain injury because I had a lot of left-sided weakness in my body like after my brain injury like I had to walk around with a cane and stuff and 
she thinks I might have had like some sort of imbalance that I was just like lifting super heavy on and running on for, you know, seven years and at one point just like gave way and that was kind of what what might have done it. But Yeah, it's, I mean the, the the tough part about those things, right, is like it seems entirely like a logical argument, right? Um and it's correlation right? It's like you have this condition, right? This happened to you and, and it totally makes sense. Um, it's really hard to say like it's causation, right? That it's, right. that's exactly what it is. Um, even though those things seem to, to go together. So it's, um, but luckily what kind of surgery did you have? Did you, have, I had uh, oats. Oh, okay, great. That has much better outcomes than the microfracture, right? So, um, so luckily for you, your surgeon did a, was able, you know, you've had the kind of defect where they could do that to you, and they it usually has pretty good outcomes, even though it probably kind of stinks for you at the moment. <laughs> yeah, well, I had the surgery like two years ago, and oh, okay, it's honestly like never really been the same, but it's yeah. definitely I think a little better. I just have like a ton of swelling and stuff anytime I do any impact related stuff, but oh, gotcha. it, it is what it is. Um, yeah. So yeah, but. Generally speaking, like the research shows that that oats procedure is much better than the microfracture. Yeah, that's why I went with the oats instead of the microfracture. Yeah. Um, but all right. Uh, so, a couple, couple last questions here. Uh, having experienced multiple levels of athletics as an athletic trainer and um, now as a professor as well, uh, what is the number one thing that you think needs to change in order to improve safety uh, at each level? Hmm. That's a great question. I'm going to tackle maybe the youth level for that particular question, because that's where a lot of my research is at. Um, I think that we have a little bit of an issue that we don't know about quite yet. And that we thought we were concerned about. And my recent doc student who just graduated, Eric Post, he did his dissertation on this. And basically what he showed is that um, club coaches have, are less likely to have the proper kind of emergency preparedness um, information compared to, for example, like high school coaches, meaning that club coaches are maybe even not required to have, for example, uh, CPR certification, first aid training, um, even like kind of knowing a general kind of an emergency action plan for where they're holding practice. And that to us is kind of alarming, right? I mean, the nice thing usually about high school athletics, there are certainly problems with high school athletics, right? But for the most part, um, a lot of places that have access to athletic trainers, almost all state organizations require high school coaches to have and, and are mandated to have um, CPR, first aid, AED training. There's usually access to an AED on site. Um, and sometimes what happens is, you know, like, uh, you know, I'm a parent, I'm a parent, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and, you know, when babysitters come over to my house, right, I mean, I, the athletic trainer in me kicks in, right, and I make sure that they have all the telephone numbers of everybody around, they know that um, all the neighbors who are possibly home that could help in case there's like an emergency, right, they know um, where we go if there's like, a fire, right? So they have kind of the emergency action plan ready to go. And uh, 
And we don't really have that right now in the in the club sports setting. And it's kind of understandable. I think that overall, I mean, for the most part, 99.9% of probably club coaches really have the best intentions um, for their for their teams, for their athletes, and for their kids, right? And this might just be one of the things that's kind of potentially an oversight, and it's not a problem in, until something happens, right? Um, and so I really would like to see some sort of mandated thing that if you're a coach, you know what? You need to have first aid, CPR, AED certification. Um, that would be an absolute wonderful kind of first step. Okay. No, that's a great thing, and that's another th- – thing that we're talking about with uh, club teams again so it might yeah. be an area to consider or to, to continue looking into yeah absolutely uh where can uh, listeners follow you online like on twitter and what's your handle and, and stuff like that yeah so twitter is probably the best place to follow me my uh twitter handle is dave bell 102 um and yeah so to get all the up-to-date information about what's happening at the wisconsin injury and sport lab all right, great. I'll link that up in the show notes along with your uh, research gate link so everyone can see all the different articles that you've been uh, involved with. And can I? And it also, can we finish by just giving giving me your uh, definition of toughness? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I think a good definition of toughness is um, preparing a kid for. Uh, the path that they're about to take, right? And maybe not preparing the path for the kid because I feel like that's kind of what's happening in youth, youth sports these days, right? We're, we're trying to make the path as less bumpy as possible for kids. And what we need to do is do a probably just as good a job if not a better job of preparing the kid um, for the path that they're about to travel down. I like that a lot. I've never gotten that answer before. Really good. Cool. So thanks a lot, Dr. Bell, for coming on the podcast. And number one, thanks for doing all the great research that you guys are doing up at uh, University of Wisconsin. I'm, a, I'm actually a Packers fan, so I'm always interested in what, what you guys are doing over there up in Wisconsin. Uh, awesome. Yeah, so thanks a lot for and for taking the time your last few days of summer here before school starts up again. Uh, I'd be honored to have you on again to talk about some other stuff, some other work you guys are doing. Yeah, happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Of course.